1: ora katoa, this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm your host, Aggie Dubow, here on a Thursday morning. Appreciate your company, and today on the show, tribal violence in PNG causing grave concerns amongst villagers, but will the government intervene? Ongoing investigations into the cause of seven deaths in Ba, Fiji. Lastly, Frangipani Festival gets underway in the village of Rabul, PNG. For more on these stories, if you want to share across your social media platforms, simply type ABC Pacific Beat into your search engine. Easy as that. Again, I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. Well, what happens to a country if it no longer has a landmass? It's a strange thought, but an increasingly important one for Pacific nations faced with the threat of rising sea levels. This month, Tuvalu has made a broad, uh, bold proposition, asserting that it will continue to exist as a country even if the island disappears. Marin Farr takes a look at what it means for the wider Pacific region. The island of Tuvalu
2: is known for its beautiful beaches and tropical trees. But can the country still exist without a physical presence? It may seem like a strange question, but it's one that government MP Simon Koffer has been thinking deeply about.
3: You know, what constitutes a, a state under international law, and although there's no Agreed definition, the closest we have is is that provided in the Montevideo Convention, which defines a state as one having a physical territory.
2: That's an idea his country is trying to change, and this month it enshrined a new definition of statehood in its constitution.
3: This legal proposition that a state like Tuvalu can continue to exist as a state regardless of the impacts of climate change.
2: The new constitution says the state of Tuvalu shall remain in perpetuity, notwithstanding the impacts of climate change or anything else that results in the loss of its physical territory.
3: It's part of our efforts to try and future-proof Tuvalu because for us a state is, is more than just what's in the physical it's it's our culture, it's our history, it's the spirit of the people of Tuvalu, and, and that's something that, that could never be removed. It's, it's a part of who we are, and we want that to, to continue.
2: It's a groundbreaking move. Tuvalu is the first nation in the world to define itself in this way.
3: We've been advocating since 2020 in our foreign policy that any country that wants to establish ties or reaffirm diplomatic relations with us, that we're insisting that they recognise our statehood as being permanent.
2: Simon Coffey says it goes hand-in-hand with another initiative, creating a digital presence for the nation.
3: We're creating a jurisdiction online, that enables tuvalu to deliver all its government services to its people remotely wherever they might be in the world as well and to also demonstrate to the world that we can still fulfil our obligations under international law, manage our exclusive economic zones and the the marine resources that we have, and and other sovereign assets that we have.
2: The constitutional changes have attracted international attention. Dr Shavon Macdonald is an expert in law and anthropology from the Australian National University. This is kind of quite radical in law,
4: but we're gonna see increasingly solutions that look more and more like this as countries grapple with the implications of climate change. But she
2: says there's another factor at play. There's a geopolitics to this conversation and the geopolitics is about assertion of (laughs) maritime rights of countries (laughs) in the face of supposed threats. It's a topic of concern for many Pacific nations. In 2021, the Pacific Islands Forum issued a declaration agreeing to preserve existing maritime boundaries, even if their islands shrink due to rising sea levels. Dr Bal Kama, an adjunct assistant professor at the University of Canberra and special counsel with the Environmental Defender's Office, says Tuvalu has taken it a step further.
4: We are seeing Tuvalu here doing something that no other country in the world is doing or is prepared yet to be doing, they have taken that bold approach. And this is a first in the world that shows true leadership, leadership from Pacific states to confront the uh, existential threat that is posed by climate change.
2: While the threat of climate change to Tuvalu and other Pacific nations is real, the future impact of sea level rise has been disputed. Some reputable scientific studies have shown that Tuvalu's land mass actually increased by 2.9% in the years leading up to 2014. But Dr Kama, who was a technical advisor to the Tuvalu Constitutional Reform Commission, says it's important to prepare for all scenarios.
4: Nothing is really certain. Even the science itself is obviously subject to many other factors. There is no certainty as to what the future holds.
2: He says defining a country by its physical territory may no longer be appropriate.
4: This is a traditional definition that existed since the 1930s, at a time when climate change threat wasn't even envisaged. Now states in many regions, especially small island states, are now seeing that as not providing the sufficient protection.
2: He's urging other Pacific nations to take note.
4: The hope here is that the other Pacific island states not only rely on regional agreements and international diplomatic assurances, but take practical steps in also protecting their statehood within their constitution.
2: He hopes it will create a wave of change.
4: If many states, say in the Pacific and in other regions adopt similar approach, then it will eventually become a state practice and then that will contribute to the development of a new customary international law.
2: Tuvalu MP Simon Coffer says new notions of statehood are being considered at a regional level, including at the Pacific Islands Forum. He says leaders have been working on a declaration to be tabled at the upcoming PIF Summit in Cook Islands.
3: I'm assuming that the, the outcome of this document will, will certainly be in line with, with what Tuvalu has been advocating on, on the permanency of our of our statehood.
2: The new constitution will take effect on the 1st of October, when Tuvalu celebrates 45 years of independence. For Simon Coffey, it's a proud moment.
3: It's high time now that we um, address these issues.
1: And that is Tuvalu MP Simon Coffey ending Marion Farr's report. Now to Ba in Fiji where authorities are racing to find the cause of a diarrhea outbreak which has sparked fears of water contamination in the region. Four to five new cases a day are being recorded in Balevuto while 18 people have been admitted to hospital. The fears follow the deaths of seven people in the area. However, the government has confirmed they are not related to the current outbreak. To find out more about the situation, we are joined by Member of Parliament Viam Pile who is phoned in from Fiji. Welcome to the show.
5: Thank you, ma'am. Good morning. Mr
1: Pillay, we've heard of seven deaths due to waterborne disease there in Balevuto area. However, the Health Ministry has confirmed the cases are not linked. So what are they putting the diarrhoea outbreak down to?
5: Well, uh, 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 most of the cases are related to diarrhoea. and uh, uh, I understand and I know very well there was also a, a outbreak in the same locality from Balaguto catchment in the year 2012 and that was uh, hepatitis and with, was related to water from the same catchment and uh, uh, there was a dead animal found uh, then and a lot of people were sick and this time again uh, uh, for the past uh, month a lot of people are sick in the community, and there are uh, deaths, and some people are still admitted, and uh, some are uh, visiting the local uh, health centers, the local doctors uh, for medical treatment. Uh, the community uh, believes that is related to the water catchment, uh, but uh, the water authority of Fiji has cleared who's looking after the catchment now that uh, the water is not contaminated. And uh, there are other tests which has been done by Ministry of Health as of now.
1: So initial laboratory investigations suggest that illness is likely caused by bacteria, but do we have a timeline on when we might get a definitive answer?
5: There should be a timeline because the people from the community are suffering and they are fearing to drink the water. I have been liaising with the uh, Honourable Minister for Health, Honourable Minister for Infrastructure. Uh, in this regard, uh, for quite some time, I uh, asked them to provide clean drinking water from other uh, catchment areas like the Waiwai catchment in Ba, which provides water to the town and other urban areas, which they have slowly started. Uh, there are uh, the communities of uh, Naruku, Watsui, Tonga and Nadadi Nukluwa, Nukluwa Back Road, part of Moto, part of Tamatamba, Tamba, and the villages of tange Balevutu, and the settlement of Derlali, who have been uh, using this water from uh, Balevutu catchment. Uh, there is a lot of work that has been already uh, done at the catchment area to improve, like the new treatment plant is currently in place. There is a million-liter water tank which is in place. The EFL grid has been extended to the catchment area. The road has been done, which was – all this was not there in 2012. And uh, what they are doing, they are using uh, drip treatment at the moment because uh, the water is gravity flow and they are just uh, dripping the chlorine to treat the water and supply it to all the homes. It's about close to 700 homes uh, with the water emitted uh, now who are receiving the water from Balevutu catchment. But the community is fearing uh, to drink water. Slowly, uh, we also have five schools in that community, Nukuluwa Primary, Nukuluwa Secondary, Narugu Primary, Nadadi, Hindu and Balevutu Public School. So the authorities have moved in now and flushed the water tanks at the schools and uh, cleaned the water tanks and provided water from the other catchment area, treated water. Same, I have advised them to put in tanks in all communities. Slowly they are moving in uh, to position tanks where we we have uh, populated areas so that uh, people can access uh, drinking water. Because these communities are going out now either to buy bottled water or to boil water or to get water from other areas like the nearby communities, Moto, uh, Kumkum, Nandrau, Chenakoti, Marnitawa, where the uh, water is coming from another source that is a railway treatment plant and they are accessing uh, drinking water from there. And uh, as we all know, uh, the number of people who are sick, the families are also affected, uh, those who are uh, especially working, now looking after their family members. Uh, this is a farming community. Uh, most of uh, the residents are farmers and the farm laborers, and also the people are in the formal sector and in the informal sector working. So people are affected in so many ways. Uh, that's why it's very important that uh, the Ministry of Health and other agencies uh, quickly clear the air, actually, what is the cause, and also provide the relevant support and uh, advice uh, medically. Uh, to the residents who are affected. Uh, It's almost all the residents who are affected in the community. Mm.
1: Uh, You were talking about the public, though. Have members of the public been able to tell you about how they feel about the situation? Has there been a bit of panic?
5: Yes, uh, yes. Yes, madam, I'm from the same uh, community. I'm a regular visitor, and uh, I'm also aware of what all happened in 2012 because during that time I was the district advisory chairman for Bar District and i was based there for a year uh, during that uh, project when it was uh, the new pipelines were uh, laid uh, during 24 12, the former honorable prime minister was there on the third day to assist the community and uh, provide the relevant support and uh, he was the one who uh, did the new treatment plant uh, the new tank uh, was done during the last term the routing and the EFL and all those works has been done. This bit of work that is left, uh, that is connected the mi- to the main treatment plant and the water is to, uh, coming to that treatment mm-hmm. plant. And then tests are done, then hopefully things can be normal. But c- with the situation the community went through in the current situation, the communities are fearing uh, to drink water. Almost every week, uh, whenever I'm back from parliament to my community, I'm in that community. And uh, I'm also the patron of the Nikuluwa Primary and Nicolua Secondary School. So with the teams around in the management and the other local communities, we are always there together sharing the information on the ground.
1: Mm. You mentioned schools earlier. Has their operational capacity been impacted during this period?
5: Yeah, actually, the management I've spoken also and I've also advised them to provide support to the children, especially boil water, uh, try and supply some bottled water. And also Water Authority of Fiji has uh, moved in to schools and they have flushed the water out of the tanks that were stored and uh, they have filled in new water from uh, the other catchment where the full treatment is going, that is from the Wai Treatment Plant. So I feel uh, the students and the staff... Uh, are, uh, they have uh, safe drinking water in schools. I'm a bit worried about the communities because uh, uh, they are being advised to drink from the same catchment uh, that the water is safe, which uh, the community is not uh, willing to because they fear the water is not safe. So they really go through difficulties in organizing safe drinking water. They're trying their best. And uh, I believe not every home or every residence can do that. So how safe is that till everything is cleared? But uh, slowly and uh, it took a, t- a bit of time for the authorities to move into the area. Uh, but uh, I would like to thank the Honorable Minister for Health and Honorable Minister for Infrastructure. They have assured me that the treatment plant will be operational very soon. And uh, they hope to get the results of the test And uh, soon after my session in Parliament, I'll be also going back to the community. But daily I'm receiving calls from the community of the situation every morning, every afternoon, and uh, always there to assist them.
1: Mr Pillay, do you think those fears are connected to maybe a bit of misinformation that's been circulating around the outbreak?
5: Yeah, can be, madam, but also the situation is similar to what it was and the memories are there with the people what happened during, during 2012 because uh, every household people were sick. Either they were visiting Balevutu Health Centre or Ba Mission or the Lotoga Hospital. Uh, lucky there was no death that time, but almost all homes somebody was sick during that time also. Do and you f- that was... Really- yeah.
1: Do, do you find it ironic, though, that Balibutu has water problems when the home of one of the world's best bottled waters, like Fiji Water, is just about 12, 12 k's away?
5: Yeah, this is uh, their private uh, water system, uh, madam. This is uh, like Balibutu. There are also other catchments, uh, water sources, which supplies water to different communities. Like the scenario we have in Balehuto, it's uh, almost all of the work is complete. bit of work will be done and this project will be all okay and well. Because from the catchment area up to the real source, where the spring is uh, coming, where the water is really coming following the creek, it's some four and a half kilometers away from the catchment. And this is an open area. During This time is dry season. And uh, we have, uh, during the uh, previous time, uh, when I was the Assistant Minister for Agriculture and Waterways, we had also had issues in regards to stray animals. Our teams have also caught animals from that area just near the catchment and in the creek at the back of the catchment. So, this is not new. The community is known to the area. The farming community is all around that catchment. They know what is happening near the catchment. So uh, that's why they are they are fearing. Uh, Even they have seen wild animals. uh, uh, It's not just rumors, but I believe uh, the communities uh, still remember what they went through. It and daily they see what is all going around the catchment.
1: What then would be your current advice for the public?
5: Well, uh, I will advise the community to adhere all the advices and instructions from Ministry of Health. Please boil all drinking water if you are. Not able to get uh, safe drinking water outside. Uh, Water authority has cleared that uh, there is no contamination. The Ministry of Health has done some tests and they are still doing some tests. Uh, They have moved in providing uh, the tablets for uh, purifying water. They're also providing uh, wash kits. Uh, slowly they are moving into communities. So the only thing is to adhere to the advice by the Ministry of Health, work together with the communities, community leaders, try to assist each other during this time and uh, try to be safe. Thank you. Uh,
1: Mr Pillay, what could the health authorities do more
5: Yeah, I have uh, spoken to the honourable minister and I think he's responding. He is, as I said, they are moving into the area. I did uh, spoke about this in our parliament here. Uh, For them, uh, for the time being, to prove cart water for, there is a nearby source, uh, full treatment is going there, Uh, at least drinking water uh, while they are providing to the schools now. Similarly, I have advised them to put water tanks around communities where communities can access safe drinking water from the water tanks, which is provided through water cutting from a different water source, which they have started to do. Some areas they have moved in, some areas are still left, and they are moving into other areas to supply water to their communities.
1: I want to say thank you very much, uh, Mr. Pale, for your time this morning. Appreciate your insight to what is happening there in Parebuto.
5: Thank you very much, ma'am.
1: And that is Vyampilay, Member of Parliament in Fiji. Want to immerse yourself in sport and stories of athletes from across the Pacific? Well, join me, Bobby McCumber, alongside some of the most talented journalists and sports commentators from across the region for a new sports show on ABC Radio Australia, fresh off the field. Each week, we'll bring you interviews with Pacific athletes leaving their mark on the international stage and those aspiring to do the same. From cricket to netball, athletics to rugby and everything in between.
2: Fresh off the field, Thursdays,
6: 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia.
1: Yes, welcome back to Pacific Beat. It is that time where we head around the region uh, to get the latest with our news rep here, producer Carl Evans. Good morning, sir. How you doing? Good morning to you, Aggie. I am well, thank you. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. Uh, let's get into our stories this morning. We start with PNG. There seems to be fears about firearms being used there
7: uh, in the upper is- uh, highlands uh, coming from Australia. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's what's being alleged. Uh, so there's 200,000 unregistered firearms uh, in Australia, which is a Quite an alarming amount and uh, and many of them are apparently finding their way uh, into tribal fights within PNG so this is reported by the post courier and uh, and follows comments by PNG police commissioner David Manning uh, who said the firearms are traveling from Australia via Indonesia before being sold uh, with within uh, Papua New Guinea um, what's more he actually he said the modernization of a lot of these weapons and also even the use of drones uh, has seen the fighting sort of move away from from those traditional conflicts and just evolve into something a, a whole lot more sinister, which is yeah very alarming.
1: Well, how are the guns actually getting into the country, though?
7: Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. Uh, according to the PNG Defence Forces, uh, acting commander, who was also at that announcement or that press conference, I understand um, there's a number of holes within the southern border where weapons um, can be smuggled through. Uh, obviously, due to PNG's terrain, it's, it's a very challenging environment um, to secure, uh, and there aren't really enough resources to cover all those holes within those mountainous regions. So, yeah, that's that's essentially how it happens.
1: Crazy, crazy, crazy. Uh, Speaking of Australia, Foreign Minister Petey Wong will be travelling to the Pacific today. What brings her to the region?
7: Yeah, so she'll be travelling to Fiji for the Pacific Islands uh, Forum Foreign Ministers Meeting. So this is sort of like a a preliminary meeting uh, that will take place ahead of the major PIF meeting. Uh, She'll meet with uh, Siddhavani Rambuka to discuss a range of things uh, around strengthening the economies. Of both Australia and Fiji, uh, responding to the climate crisis uh, and enhancing the uh, the relationship in general. They're always quite vague uh, these things when you read them on the press release. Um, but ultimately, it's a chance just to listen, share ideas, and, uh, and act together ahead of that. Uh, yeah, that major PIF meeting um, later in the year. She also said it's an opportunity to take forward the implementation of the uh, 2050 strategy for the Blue Pacific continent.
1: There's just plenty of officials that are just uh, sound like a average. good PR representative there. <laughs> Sounds great, thank you for that, Carl. Uh, look, the upcoming film about American Samoas national football team, uh, Nick Scott Wins has premiered. Is that right?
7: Yeah, that's right. So uh, Taika Waititi's new film uh, has arrived at the Toronto Film Festival uh, with a bang, uh, according to reports. Um, and yeah, it follows a story about uh, uh, about American Samoas infamous thirty-one nil loss against Australia back in two thousand and one, uh, and the subsequent efforts to turn that team uh, around in the. Following years Michael farsbender plays the manager uh, Thomas Rogan who takes on the coaching job and uh, and whips them into shape before that uh, World Cup qualifying match in 2014 um, so he actually took the stage at the premiere uh, alongside Jaya so Lua who was the first openly non-binary and trans woman to complete to compete in the FIFA World Cup qualifier so um so yeah pretty pretty amazing story that's come to life absolutely
1: I mean have the reviews been positive?
7: Um surprisingly not that great, unfortunately, Aggie. Uh, debuted on Rotten Tomatoes with an initial score of uh fifty-nine percent, which I don't know about you, but if if I'm if I'm looking up movies I kind of skip right past that. But um but look, it's it's still very early and I'm sure there's still time for uh for that to, to get back up. But I think more importantly it's gonna be a, a very meaningful movie um, you know, to those who, who it will mean most to in the Pacific. So
1: Yeah, that's what I look forward to. But man, fifty-nine percent considering this man has made movies for Marvel. Yeah, one
7: reviewer said it was unspectacular, (laughs) but charming. So that's positive, I guess. Yeah,
1: absolutely. We'll take that. Uh, Look, Kyle Evans, thank you very much for doing our news wrap this morning. Thank you, Aggie. You've been tuning in to Pacific Beat. When it comes to being connected, let's get Pacific. From across the seas and right around our region, ABC Australia is connecting you like never before with a new voice in news, politics, sports and events. From Fiji to Kiribati, PNG to French Polynesia, our trusted team of reporters bring you everything Pacific. Join me, Johnson Reala, because what matters to the Pacific matters to us. Watch the Pacific, Thursday nights, 7pm PNG time on ABC Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Aggie Tupou. Now, submissions from a group of small island states have evoked images of motherhood to the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea in Germany to seek a protection of the oceans. The case was brought by the Commission of Small Island States on Climate Change and International Law. The group was asking the court to decide if greenhouse gas emissions absorbed by the oceans should be considered marine pollution. And what are the obligations? Of high-emitting countries, provoca Voloda with more.
8: Lawyer and Tuvaluan Naima Fifita stood before the 21 judges in Hamburg with one plea: help in light of climate change. As an indigenous Tuvaluan, as a youth, and as a mother
9: to a daughter of the Pacific who opened her eyes to this world just one year ago, my fears are for the kind of world she will inherit.
8: She was one of several Pacific Island and Caribbean representatives to make their case before the tribunal.
9: It is future generations that will have to live with the consequences of
8: choices that are made today.
9: And it is future generations that will look back to the legacy of this tribunal.
8: Her views were echoed by Tuvalu's Prime Minister, Kausia Natano. He says countries have an obligation to protect the marine environment from warming, acidification and sea level rise.
5: We come here seeking urgent help in the strong belief that international law is an essential mechanism for collecting the manifest injustice that our people are suffering as a result of climate change.
8: There are estimates that oceans absorb around a quarter of the world's carbon emissions. Threatened by frequent storms and rising seas, the group went to the court to ask these questions. Should greenhouse gases absorbed by the ocean be seen as marine pollution? And what obligations do high-polluting countries have to protect the sea? They are not seeking a new law, but are calling for an advisory opinion. An expert in international law at the Australian National University, Professor Donald Rothwell, says the hearing is unprecedented.
0: There's been no other case before any international court or tribunal in which this particular issue has been raised. So this is really a very unique uh, case before the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea,
8: Most countries have ratified the Convention on the Law of the Sea from the 1980s. It includes an obligation to protect the marine environment. But here's the issue. It makes no mention of greenhouse gases, emissions or climate change. Many see this hearing as a test case. Professor Rothwell.
0: It's raising some very distinctive uh, questions, which international law scholars and commentators have considered and debated for many decades, but they've never been able to come to a, a real resolution to that question. So that's why this advisory opinion is the focus of so much attention at the moment.
8: Earlier this year, Vanuatu brought a case before the International Court of Justice to issue an advisory opinion on countries' obligations to address climate change. At the hearing. Anuatu's Attorney General, Arnold Lockman has said the two cases before the two courts are complementary. This specialised tribunal is focused on the marine environment, while the ICHA will address climate change
3: under general international law. But since it will go first, it will establish the precedent that will shape what will follow.
8: Over the next one and a half weeks, 35 other states, including Australia and New Zealand, and some non-governmental organisations will make their submissions. A decision is expected to be made early next year, most likely before the ICJ's decision. Professor Rothwell says while it won't be legally binding, he expects it will have a big impact.
0: This decision, when it eventually is handed down, will, I think, be a real game-changer for a, a, a crystallisation and a clear understanding of what the legal obligations are with respect to the law of the sea and climate change.
1: That is Dipravka Volanda reporting there. Pacific Beach. But this week, Pacific Beat has put the spotlight on the outbreak of tribal violence in Papua New Guinea's Inga province. Dozens of deaths have been reported in the past month alone, and we've heard from residents about police and military forces being outnumbered by tribal fighters. So joining us this morning to speak more about the situation in Inga is Peter Chamalili Jr., PNG's Minister for Internal Security. Good morning, Minister.
9: Very good morning.
1: Thank you very much for joining us. Look, we've been hearing. You're most welcome. Yeah, we've been hearing some horrific reports of deaths and killings there in Inga Province. What is the government doing to try and quell the problem?
9: Well, first, first and foremost, um, tribal fight is uh, as many would, uh, would 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 try to understand. It's uh, it's it's not an it's it's not an ordinary uh, conflict. It's uh, it's uh it's, it's 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 uh between tribes right um and it's something that it's uh it's uh, it's sort of a a fight that's been or, or a conflict that's been between between two 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 uh, groups of people that have been living together for for centuries and may have may have had uh, misunderstanding or are not being able to, to come to a solution to on a, on a certain issue um, and it's it's uh, all, all, we, all we, we 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 try to we try to do is um, uh, as, as, as much as we can um, uh, help help both sides uh, come to the table to, to 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 negotiate on a certain issue. Um, so the, so it, it's, a it's, it's, it's quite complex because, um, um, it's, it's, it's very, it's very cultural. It's very cultural. Um, so it, it, it really, it really, it really needs, um, um, uh, all, all parties, all parties within, uh, Within the group of people to to uh, come to a common understanding uh, uh, to to address a certain issue and so um, uh, that's that's one of our that's one of our biggest challenge uh, uh, in any government not just this government but in any government uh past uh and present and into the future. Uh, is uh, uh, having having every all parties uh, always uh, uh, underst- understanding understanding uh, understanding different the uh, different cultures and and um, how we can all how, how we can all uh, communicate on a certain issue, but it needs a lot of tolerance. Um, uh, you know, we, we we um we come from uh, almost 800 uh, different languages, a thousand a thousand tribes, so to speak, and so that's the, that's the challenge within itself for for governments in the past, uh, the the current government, and and uh, into the future. Mm. Um, Minister,
1: I have to ask though But do you think that's a good enough excuse to give to the people Who are having to be forced to leave their villages Are left with nowhere to go Should the government not at least possibly maybe set up shelters To have to look after these families I mean, they're having their houses being burnt down I mean, is it enough to just say That you are asking people to just come to the table and talk It doesn't look like they want to talk though
9: well um, uh, we, we live in a communal we live in a communal setting right everyone helps each other um, and uh, on on the ground uh, we, we try as much as we can everyone helps each other that, that's that's the uh, uh, that that's the scenario that we have um, um, as as I mean as government uh, uh the services that we we provide i mean for for example up in uh where in anger right now um uh if if for, for from one village to another village um if if families uh uh are being forced families are being forced to to uh, or the houses are burned down. Uh, y- usually, as m- most cases, uh, we have relatives. We have distance relatives. Uh, they move to to one point to another point. Um, and so, as I mean, as much as we can, uh, uh, the gov- the government, all the government uh, is uh, can do can do at this point in time, especially with with uh, law, law and order. Uh, Is to try and secure, try as much as we can secure those that uh, uh, come towards to to their relatives that are outside of the tribal fight zone. Because what happens is uh, the between the two tribes when they fight, they, they they're not gonna they're not going to fight with other people outside of the of the conflict zone. They stick to they stick to they stick to themselves, they fight within themselves. And so if families are moving out, or, or out of the tribal zone they they find shelter with other relatives that are outside of the tribal zone so until until such a time that they uh, uh, there is peace on the table and they come back so most of the families now are just they've moved back to they've actually they've uh, they've gone to people or, or families that are outside of the tribal zone to find to find refuge and so that's the only way we at this point in time we help Uh, those that are outside of the, outside of the tribus zone. So it's a bit, it's a bit conflict. I mean, complex, it's, it's not something that uh, has just happened um, this time, uh, this time, this, in, in this period. It's, Mm. yeah, it's something that happens, um, that's happened in the past and now, I mean, it's happening now uh, and into the future. Um, And it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it just, it, at the end of the day, I, I in my personal view, um, uh, literacy literacy is also one of our our biggest, uh, um, I say, a, a gap uh, gap with um, with our community. I think the more um, the more we can, uh, uh, the government provides uh, education, it, it helps. It just helps those that um, that, that are put in the position. Uh, to solve conflict with with violence um, uh, can you know can cannot resolve cannot resolve to, to arms um, or, or such horrific um, uh, you know uh, violence.
1: I have to ask though, is this a situation where maybe PNG will need outside help then, such as Australia, or do you think PNG authorities really can restore peace themselves?
9: We will restore peace and it comes back down to leadership taking control and we are, we, and, and that's what we're doing. Uh, in most cases, uh, uh, these, these are internal matters and these are cultural matters. And so they've already started reaching out to different parts. Other leaders around uh, the Highlands region have started to, to come back or started to reach out to the leaders within that particular tribe. So that's already happening. That's already happening. Uh, I mean, it's um, some of the the some of the the issues that uh, that are being used as part of this uh, this conflict uh, relates back to uh, elections, um, and the only way, um, in in my view, which is already happening, is the uh tribal chiefs from other tribes reaching out and and interven and, and having an intervention from them um to the chiefs within those 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 areas of um uh of, of the tribal fight and uh, allowing that intervention to happen uh, to provide peace and it just comes down to to, to our tribal leaders uh i don't think uh, um you know, we we always have uh, our partners from outside, but this is, uh, as I said, is a very it's it's a cultural, it's a cultural conflict that needs cult- cultural uh, uh, resolution.
1: Mm, absolutely, we really do hope to see some sort of uh, resolve there in uh, PNG. We do want to thank you for your no time problem. this morning.
9: No, thank th- thank you very much, and uh, to all the listeners, and uh, yeah, thank you for the uh, opportunity to to speak about our situation, and uh, we, we will find a solution. Uh, we will find a solution, and uh, I think the solution uh, for us in Papua New Guinea is, is always internal, uh, and we will resolve that uh, going into the future.
1: Thank you very much for that. Uh, we were just speaking to Peter Chamalili Jr., who is the Minister for Police and Internal Security, right here on Pacific Beat. Now, invasive species have cost the world well over a trillion US dollars, at a minimum, and that's growing. A new global database set up by a scientist has helped develop a clearer picture of the greatest threats caused by biological invasions to the environment, agriculture and human health. And the price tag is eye-watering here in Australia, where the major threats include cats, weeds, crop pests and diseases. Professor of Global Ecology Corey Bradshaw from Flinders University in South Australia is one of more than 100 researchers from around the globe to contribute to the the database.
10: The whole point behind this is we sort of going back to 2014 some of my French colleagues and I set up this large database just looking at invasive insects and their costs because they were actually some of the best quantified of of all the different invasive species and we looked at around the world that invasive insects were causing somewhere in the vicinity of about uh, 70 uh, billion U.S. dollars a year, and that was just the insects. And so it's kind of exploded into a database that um, now has you know tens of thousands of entries from pretty much every country in the world. And we've shown that the costs of invasive species, not just insects, uh, are about you know at least 1.2 trillion U.S. dollars. That's a rising number. So it's it's kind of getting a little bit out of control and uh you know the other thing that we're, we're showing from these databases is that the more you look the more you find so many parts of the world don't actually have the infrastructure or the capability to research and, co- and try to estimate these costs and we have found that you know in countries like australia where we do actually have biosecurity and um different government departments and, and researchers that are looking into these things our costs are actually much higher because as I said, the more you look, the more it's there. It's a little bit like COVID tests. You know, if you do lots of tests, you find it. But if you don't do the tests, you don't you don't see that it's there. So the the estimates we give, while they're shockingly huge, there's still probably a very very you know small tip of the iceberg.
6: So what is the value of having a database like this, of being able to to tap in and and see from around the world where these invasive species are and, and what the cost of them is.
5: Well,
10: I think the main thing is it just gets people's attention and, and principally people like policymakers and politicians who would otherwise probably be reticent to act. And so as soon as you start, you know, if, if, you, if we came at it from the perspective of, oh, you know, invasive species cause lots of harm to native biodiversity, like they kill off native species, for example, Australia has... Uh, the largest um, rate of mammal extinctions in the world, and that's largely because of cats and foxes and a little bit less. But if you say it's, you know, they're killing all the, the bilbies and everything, people go, oh, that's a shame, and they don't do much. But if you say, well, it costs us $30, $30 billion a year, uh, maybe we should do something about it. And they go, oh, right, yeah, that makes sense.
6: <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, sometimes you do have to put a price tag on things to, uh, yeah. to get the attention.
10: Indeed, or you, you attribute it to uh, human health and that's another component of invasive species is that they actually do uh, reduce the quality of life and, and increase mortality in lots of places, you know, through the, for example, through the spread of invasive mosquitoes that bring in diseases like, you know, dengue and, and malaria.
6: As you said, this initially started out uh, tracking invasive or insects, um, but when we're now talking about invasive species. So this is essentially any introduced flora or fauna that is introduced somewhere where it's not naturally meant to be found
10: that's right and then the other component of that is that it has to establish self-sustaining populations so you people bring it in either deliberately or accidentally uh, often it's not really known they we sort of we call these hitchhikers you know they come in ship containers and things like that and then they manage to establish a population and then breed enough that they can start to spread through the, through the new environment. And that's when the problems really start. And that, that process from uh, introduction to establishment and spread can take decades sometimes. So early intervention is actually key here.
6: We're looking at the data for Australia. I mean how how many invasive species does our country have?
10: We have thousands and thousands of invasive species. Many of those of course are weeds. And we're quite familiar with, with weeds. Um, things like uh, pathenium and ryegrass and ragwort so as a, as a group weeds probably cost us the most basically in terms of you know crop reductions and the management expenditure around trying to get rid of them but in terms of you know individual species for which we have cost things like cats are actually the costliest both in terms of ecology so what they're eating and, uh, for our native mammals mainly as well as just the cost of trying to get rid of them for example on Can- kangaroo island there's over a four million dollar program that 's operating right now just to try to get uh, rid of cats. They won 't come close, unfortunately, but you know invasive pigs have cost well over three and a half million so far.
1: And that's Corey Bradshaw, who is Professor of Global Ecology at Flinders University, is speaking with Selena Green. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. You can also hear us again this afternoon at 3pm PNG time. But tomorrow is your sports edition with Richard Ewart. Stay tuned to ABC Australia because news is next. After that is News Daily. Until next Monday, I'm Aggie Dubow and this is Pacific Beat.